Marking its 40th anniversary in 2022, Blue Door is the largest emergency housing provider in York Region, providing life-saving support to children, youth, adults, seniors, and families at risk or experiencing homelessness. Along with offering emergency housing and housing retention support, in the past two years, Blue Door has expanded its service offering to further work toward preventing and ending homelessness through inclusion, the first supportive housing program for two SLGBTQ plus youth in York Region. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, providing supported skills training to help youth and adults break barriers to employment and secure meaningful careers in construction trades and launching in 2022 a health hub which will include a nurse and in-reach system navigator to help people regain the health and well-being needed to secure and retain permanent housing. Join Blue Door's mission and become part of the solution by learning more at bluedoor.ca. We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squahomish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to On The Way Home, a podcast dedicated to the issues surrounding homelessness and the incredible experts making a difference in the lives of homeless people. Remember to subscribe to the podcast anywhere you're listening and share it with a friend. Welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. I'm your host, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door. And this is a co-production brought to you by the good folks at Blue Door and as well the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. Let's talk a little bit about Blue Door. What's going on there? We have a pretty cool construction company called Construct. Social enterprise, don't you know? And uh, the way it operates is, hey, it's like any other construction company. We could do renos, we do construction cleanup, we could build houses, renovations, that kind of thing. Uh, You get experts that do the work for a fair price, but hey, here's the difference. We're gonna bring six to eight people, which you don't pay for, that are getting some hands-on experience. They get launched into the trades and we prevent them falling into homelessness you know why because they're getting a living wage to start with it's meaningful work so they're going to like it we did this wrong for a long time uh, with uh, not providing people with living wages and and not giving them valuable uh meaningful work but we are doing it right and it's pretty cool and here's the other thing too is that if we make revenue from doing all this work we can pour that back into getting people off the streets and into permanent affordable housing with supports and as well hey, if we're going to build thousands and thousands of homes across Canada in the next while to prevent and end homelessness, someone's got to build them. So we are doing this so we could get uh, or try and meet the need for all these people that need to get into the trades. So it's pretty cool that is construct at Blue Door. It is now running in Durham, York, and Peel. If you are interested, check out our website, bluedoor.ca. Right now, our friends at the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness are getting pumped up for their conference in the fall. Check out their website. It's both virtual and in person. Uh, it's in Toronto this year. It'd be cool to be back in person doing that. Uh, you can sign up for it, sign your team up for it. Uh, always, it's the biggest conference of this nature uh, in the country and probably worldwide. So it's pretty, pretty cool. Uh, sign up and if you have something you need to say, you want to share, you're doing some pretty cool work, look at the website to see. Maybe you could present there as well. Or if you're listening and you think, how do I reach out to this crowd? 
of probably around two, 3,000 people. Uh, you want to, it's a great way if you're looking at your products or you have something that this crowd will be interested in, be a sponsor and sponsor this conference. So check it out at caeh.ca. As always on this podcast, I want to get to our guest. Our guest uh, is fantastic and I can't wait to have this conversation. In fact, as I was preparing uh, for this guest, I was reading the Toronto Star on the weekend. They were talking about, uh, of course, housing right now and in some of the inequity uh, in housing as, as the average price of the GTA drops about or drops or increases to about 1.3 million. Uh, so it is so timely to have our friend Paul Kershaw, Kershaw on the podcast with us today. Let me tell you a little bit about Paul. If it sounds like I'm reading this, it's because I am verbatim. So Dr. Paul is a professor at the University of BC. He's a public speaker. He's a regular media contributor and founder of Generation Squeeze, which we'll talk about today as well, a force for intergenerational fairness to improve Canada's well-being, powered by the voices of younger Canadians and those who love them, all backed by cutting-edge research, which is very, very important, as we've learned on this podcast. Kershaw is one of Canada's leading thinkers about generational equity. Paul, so awesome to have you on the show. You've done that and so much more. So welcome to On The Way Home. Thanks so much for having me. We ask a standard question at the beginning because there is no standard answer. Um, we want to know what home means to you. <laughs> uh, I don't mean to write a love letter to my partner, but wherever she is, is likely to be where home is for me, um, <laughs> in all honesty. But um, moving beyond that, I do tend to find myself thinking about like the, the phrase, you know, home is one's castle. And what does a castle do? It provides security. And I think that as we have lost grip on affordability in this country, now over decades, um, we have really compromised the way in which people can find that security to do a whole range of things, not least of which, you know, to be raising our families. And so there's a sense of security that I think I personally link with the concept of home. Well said. Very simple, but very, very true. Uh, security plays a big part in everything we do. Home is where we start the day, where we finish the day. Without that, without a start to finish, uh, it, it is a very confusing life that we lead. Let's talk about Generation Squeeze. Um, how did it get started? What is it all about? <clears throat> so as you mentioned, Gen Squeeze is a force for a generational fairness. And we started now a little over a decade ago. I can't believe it. Um, starting to understand why I have more gray hair than people can't see it right now, but it's coming across in the sound waves, I'm sure. And we saw back in the day that a range of problems were having a, a common source. So whether it was like underinvestment in childcare or a lack of urgency to address climate change or, um, you know, the erosion of housing affordability um, or actually, you know, to some degree, um, you know, growing government debts that we're leaving for the future to pay. These are all a tendency to downgrade the importance of getting it right for all generations to be making sure that we have reciprocity between young and old alike and that we are planning for all ages and being good stewards of things that are sacred, like a healthy uh, childhood, like uh, an affordable home, like a secure climate. And so we started over a decade ago trying to draw attention that there is systemic racism, there is systemic classism, there is systemic heterosexism, systemic sexism, etc. And we wanted to add into the dialogue 
a recognition that we have a systemic intergenerational system that is also actually quite harmful right now. And I think housing is the quintessential example of it that will really, um, that many of your listeners will really feel because <clears throat> we're, we can talk today about is our housing system working well or not. For anyone who got into the housing system as a homeowner some time ago, and full disclosure, I've now been a homeowner since 2004, and I've done it in the burbs of Metro Vancouver. Um, well, you know, home prices rising have made me wealthier. Indeed, BC Assessment, um, that's the, the provincial organization that annually calculates what a home is worth when they're calculating property taxes, told me my home went up by half a million dollars last year alone while I slept. And so that is something that, you know, in many respects, you can say, like, benefits me. I have more wealth. I have more equity when it comes to security. I have ability to borrow if I ever need to. I can, if I wanted to, I could sell out and move pretty much anywhere in the country. That's a lot of security it's given me. But someone who's just as smart as me, just as hardworking as me, um, but just happens to be younger than me or a newcomer of any age, can't have their work pay off in the same way. Rising home prices have meant hard work has been, the payoff from hard work has been crushed for younger Canadians and newcomers of any age. And so this, what's been good for an older demographic has been really challenging for a younger demographic. And Jen Squeeze is trying to play in that space. And I'll just say one more piece about how we play in the, how the housing space, where we're aiming to be a complementary force. I think for much of Canada's housing advocacy uh, community. It has its origins back some decades ago when we didn't have this massive gap between average home prices and local earnings. And so the institutional focus of much of our housing advocacy has been on, rightly so, street homelessness. And then how do we build social housing for those who are working poor, where we don't have living wages, etc. And there's been a real focus on scaling up a kind of not-for-profit housing sector. Critical work. Gen Squeeze absolutely supports that. At the same time, we have this complimentary voice saying, it's going to be hard to scale up deeply affordable co-ops, deeply affordable purpose-built rental, scale up the degree of housing we need you know, to, to respond to the emergency of such high levels of homelessness if we don't get control over average home prices and the land costs that are driving them. Because it's much more costly to scale up deeply affordable housing when you have to spend so much to get the land in the first place to do that scaling up. So I think that's a really key voice that Jen Squeeze adds to the existing housing ecosystem. And that's why you'll hear us talking about how, darn it, Canadians are addicted, generally speaking, to high and rising home prices. And Jen Squeeze wants to be at the cutting edge of breaking our national addiction. Yeah, you know, you're so right with the addiction piece. I never thought of it that way. But when you hear people talk, the excitement, too, about, hey, it went up. I mean, if you're a homeowner, it went up like this. You know, my home's worth it. And, 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 you know, it's just, it, it's, uh, yeah, it is the, the talk of the town. Let's talk about, so I was going to ask you about the goals of Generation Squeeze. But more importantly, you know, there's the goals. But how, how do you know you'll be successful? Like, what do you look at as success measures for Generation Squeeze? Yeah, that's great. So the moral of the Gen Suisse story is that politics responds to those who organize and show up. And um, so one of our metrics uh, for increment, one of our incremental metrics for success is like, how big's our network? And, you know, we're only about 37,000 strong at this stage. And I will confess, I, uh, I, I did a, a, um, um, our own version of a live podcast for Gen Squeeze. We call it Hard Truths. Um, 
couple weeks back and i said on on the air i feel a little bit like a failure like we haven't been managed to like push from the mid 30,000s where we've been for a while into like you know 60,000 70,000 100,000 because i think with that kind of person power we could make even more um, we could make more aggressive change more quickly um, but I, I do focus on policy victories, and we say at Gen Squeeze there is no silver bullet to solve housing unaffordability. There's silver buckshot, and, and so I take pride that Gen Squeeze has contributed in a range of ways. Whether you're thinking about, you know, overcoming some nimbyism in at municipal levels to get some purpose-built rental built, uh, we were at, at the cutting edge of getting the first ever tax on empty homes in North America. We did that in combination with the city of Vancouver. Uh, we tried to get more aggressive, help Toronto become more aggressive on that front. Uh, we had thousands of people signed petitions. Seemed like Toronto was going to go in that direction, but you're a bit stalled, as far as I can tell. Um, we have been, you know, at the at the national housing strategy, there wasn't actually any recognition that young adults were vulnerable in our housing market. The only age-based analysis was that seniors were vulnerable. And don't get me wrong, there's about 20-ish percent of seniors who are. Uh, not homeowners, and so as renters, they are vulnerable in the housing market as any renter is. But we needed to point out, well, wait a second here. Seniors are especially likely to be homeowners and have been in the housing market the longest, so especially likely to have got all of the wealth windfalls from the rising home prices. It's their kids and grandkids. Uh, that have been harmed disproportionately. And so I feel proud that we were successful in getting young adults added to the National Housing Strategies group of vulnerable constituencies, which then made them eligible for billions of dollars of public funds. But on our watch, home prices relentlessly rise, as they have with any advocacy groups working on housing. And so until we can say and have governments say aloud with us, to restore affordability for all, we minimally need home prices to stall so that earnings have a chance to catch up. We're going to get nowhere. And that is a big cultural shift that uh, I think is the next big peak that we're trying to climb. Make it safe for politicians to say as much. And um, it's an on ongoing climb. That That is a huge climb, too. And I imagine, I mean, one of the reasons they don't is they're scared of losing some uh, votership, right? To say, hey, we're going to, you know, with people hanging on to those uh, higher prices and being, you know, very proud and, and thinking that is my nest egg or that is my, to stall those or, or try and reverse them a little bit, uh, that may not be so popular with the voters. But again, it's about education, right? Just educating everyone that this is better for society as a whole, which benefits us all, uh, I would guess. Thoughts? I think that's right. I think that... One of the themes that an intergenerational analysis has going for it that other systemic analyses may not is we have love at, at a core that we can draw on. So at the family table, and we've just come out of a long weekend where lots of faith groups were celebrating important moments. So there would have been a range of intergenerational tables. I was thwarted. My mom caught COVID, so we couldn't have ours. Um, happily, she's doing okay. Um, but at that intergenerational table, whenever you last had one in your own family, you'll have different age groups uh, experiencing housing differently. And many tables will have uh, an older demographic if they're fortunate enough to be homeowners, as most older folks are, then they're going to be seeing that their equity has been on the rise. But they're going to be worried about what's going on either for their kids or grandchildren because they love them and they want their kids' hard work to be able to pay off. Also, they might like their kids to move out of their home eventually, and so there's a little bit of self-interest there too, <laughs> uh, just. Um, 
<clears throat> but I think that that love at the family table can be brought into the world of politics. If we can pull that off, that is going to be the source of the cultural change that we need. But it will require some hard truths conversations um, between a younger and older demographic. And we're gonna have to ask that older demographic to potentially see how might I be implicated in a system that is tolerating home prices rising relentlessly upwards. And I think that if we can have a younger demographic say, hey, don't blame my avocado eating or my avocado toast eating or my latte <laughs> drinking or the fact that I own a cell phone, that's not the problem with our dysfunctional housing system. <clears throat> if, you, <clears throat> if you think that, you're blaming me as an individual. But what we have is younger people going to school longer, paying more for the privilege in post-secondary tuition, starting with student debt more of, often, then they accept jobs that after adjusting for inflation pay thousands of dollars less, only to face home prices that are so much higher than the past, up hundreds of thousands of dollars, that pushes home ownership out of reach, more compete for rent, and the increased competition for scarce rental is resulting in rising rents. It is a horrible consolation prize, but that is the reality of a younger demographic working more to actually have less when you think of their major cost of living, housing, and the security that it should afford people. Wow. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Oh, thanks for sharing that. It's so funny you mentioned the conversations. We had a, I, I uh, grew up in Niagara. I was down for the first time in three years having those same conversations. My brother, who's been in his house for 20-some-odd years, now is on the brink of actually owning his house in full. And he said, wow, I like I never thought I would be. And I said to him, I'll never own my, I, I am a home owner. I will never own, we will never own our home, most likely. We got to do it later. But just those conversations to my parents who have owned their home for a long time, uh, that I have no idea what it's worth because they've never really considered that. That hasn't been a big driving force. It's just a place to live, right? So those conversations, but it did come back to all of us having kids saying, how the heck or our kids who, who are now in their just university 20s, right? Who you're talking about coming out of school. How are they ever going to leave home even? Never mind, you know, home ownership. We're talking about rent, uh, et cetera. So, yes, we're having those uh, those conversations. What I, you know, listen, switching gears just a bit. Here's what I love about uh, Generation Squeeze. And I love this for, for selfish reasons, too. I think too, far too often in the sector uh, that I work in, in homelessness and housing, social services sector. We are quick to complain and point out all the th things that are not going right. We are not so quick to also come to the table with solutions. I love that uh, Generation Squeeze is about uh, solutions. Can you talk a little bit about this approach? Well, one thing that we've learned is it is a bit easier to talk about problems. You can certainly get a, you know, a short, pithy tweet out about a problem, and it's so much more challenging to actually communicate in pithy ways complex solutions and i think i've already used my line in this podcast like there's no silver bullet there is just silver bookshot like there's a bunch of tools in the toolbox that we need to use and gen squeeze tries to be 
in the business of helping people see the range of tools and how they can connect together in, the, in a hope that we can inspire hope. Um, because one of the challenges with the systems change that we need to do is that you have many Canadians, including a younger demographic, often sort of skeptical about politics. And, you know, younger folks have grown up in a context where we're often more likely to make politicians, you know, punchlines of jokes rather than people or processes to respect. But you can't fix systems as individuals. You can fix systems through acting collectively, and we do that via the world of politics. So by putting out solutions frameworks, we're trying to show a roadmap by which we can make the world of politics change policy and get us the housing system that we deserve. Um, so it's, it's intentional to like show a path between what's our goal, and we've ab adopted the audacious goal of the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation that every resident of this country should be able to afford a home that meets their needs by 2030. Unfortunately, more and more people think that's laughable given what's been happening since they announced the goal. And so we're like, okay, I understand why you think it's laughable, but it's the right goal. It, you know, 2030 is such a big year for us. We need to make sure that we have made dramatic progress in reducing uh, fossil fuel emissions. Uh, we have to try and restore housing affordability, you know, our childcare system so it never costs another rent size payment. That could be up and running at full force by 2030. That's a big timeline. Big things need to happen. But we need solutions to get there. And in our category of solutions, we have this goal, everyone afford a home that meets their needs by 2030, several principles, three of them. We have to make room for everyone. It's kind of like anti-nimbyism and an inclusion focus. We have to like take a rights approach. This is, I think, the hallmark of sort of so much of the housing advocacy system, especially those focusing on ending homelessness. And then we have a third one, which is Homes first, investments second. And so I think about your, I think you said it was your brother who has been paying off his mortgage for the last 27 years. And you know, I think someone, you know, who, back in the day when people took mortgages out on regular price homes, et cetera, and then they went through the discipline of over 25, 30 years paying off their mortgage. And so by paying off their mortgage, they're building up their equity. That's a great way to have a, like, a mortgage be like your piggy bank and imposing some discipline. Fine, excellent. But what's morphed in Canada is now people not only want to get the mortgage and pay that off, they want their home price, they want their home to go up 50%, 100%, uh, 150%, as we've become accustomed to in places like the GTA and Hamilton and Metro Vancouver and, God dare I say, Kelowna. Um, and so that's the part that we're needing to break. Housing has to be homes first. And sure, it can have a like it can be an investment that you're paying yourself off on. But if you want this big wealth windfall, go seek that somewhere else. And we need our public policies to incentivize that. So those are the principles. And when I think about the solutions under each one of those, like uh, like a rights-based approach, and dramatically scale up not-for-profit housing and protect the existing affordable housing that we have. These are dominant themes that I think your listeners of your podcast will be very familiar with. Then we have a second pillar of activity, which is let's fix the regular housing market. We need to dial down some harmful kinds of demand, whether it's people money laundering or they are house flipping or they're leaving homes empty. And we need to dial up the right kinds of supply. Too much of the supply that we are building are these you know, shoebox-like homes that you can't raise a family in. They might be good for investors, but it's not good if you want to have a second kid that you're not raising in the closet. And then Jen's... Oh, and then also let's really scale up purpose-built rental, scale up rental, deeply affordable rental. That's got to be a, a key focus. And let's make sure renters aren't second-class neighbors. 
And then where Jane squeezes increasingly focuses is that we have to break our cultural addiction to high and rising home values. So many of our policies, including what I call the home ownership tax shelter, incentivizes people to say, ah, oh, the best after-tax return I can make on an investment is over here in housing, in my principal residence often. And this contributes to a willingness to borrow more, bid up the price of housing more, and then we can talk about StatsCan doesn't even capture home prices adequately in their measurement of inflation. We send bad signals to the Bank of Canada, who then say we don't have an inflation problem, they keep interest rates low, people borrow more, they bid up the price of housing, and it's this relentless problematic cycle. So that, in a nutshell, summarized our three-part uh, housing solutions framework, scale up not-for-profit housing, fix the regular market, break our cultural addiction to high and rising home prices. And the cultural side at this stage, I think, in my view, is where a group like Gen Squeeze needs to focus. I, don't, I think it's the root problem. I don't think we can achieve the other goals if we don't shine a, show a mirror to ourselves as a nation to have a range of everyday folks say, it's not just a foreign buyer, it's not just the money launderer, it's not just that NIMBY, it's not just that mean-spirited developer, it's not just the whomever. Oh, I might have been implicated in tolerating home prices rising. I need to add my voice and say, no more. I don't, we don't want to grow our investment strategy that, that way any longer. I'm part of a group that wants to take an off-ramp from this addiction. Let's break it and let's go on to saying our goal for home prices is that they don't rise again for years. And maybe in some places there's a modest drop um, and that will be a healthier housing system going forward. Absolutely. Sorry, that was a long answer. No, no, but it was fascinating. So much uh, in there to digest. Now, I'm I, not sure if you were touching on this or not. We have a national housing strategy, and there's out of that come solutions labs. And these are not a bunch of people in uh, white coats with beakers. These are labs focused on uh, solutions, as you talked about. You have one. Uh, what was yours, if you could say, what was it focused on? I think you touched on some of it. And what are the results? Yeah, so our lab um, focused on wealth and the problem of generational inequity and housing unaffordability. And so it was a solutions lab designed to go after that third theme of breaking Canada's addiction to high and rising home prices. Because I think prior to our lab and prior to Jen Squeeze's work on this issue, like people often fall into the habit of saying the housing system is healthy when home prices are rising. The housing system is hot as home prices rise. Just go and listen to any uh, radio or, or news show about housing prices, and that's the language that you'll hear. Or like, well, okay, that's, those are the right descriptions if you want it to produce wealth for homeowners. Uh, but if you want it to produce affordability, it's deeply sick in those moments. And so uh, we wanted to talk uh, during our solutions lab about our policies to some degree tolerate the spread of a contagion of housing unaffordability in the way that public health is, would not tolerate the spread of something like COVID, which is also causing us to be sick. And so we were playing with those kinds of metaphors. And we drew attention to three key themes. One I've touched on, the homeownership tax shelter. Um, people are like, what is that? He's mentioned that a few times. So here it is. Someone who's gone to paid work today, including at Blue Door, is going to have 100% of their, their income subject to income taxes. If they're lucky enough to have any uh, money after taxes that they want to invest in the stock market, 50% of any return on investment in the stock market will be subject to taxes. But if you're a homeowner 
like I am, and you enjoy large wealth windfalls, as I have for many years in a row now, barely any of your home price increase will ever be subject to tax. And when you shelter something from taxation, you're sending a policy signal to people, hey, go invest over here, because we think this is a good way for you to get a, you know, a, a better return after taxes. And that's one of the many signals that Canadian policy sends to entangle regular everyday folks to say, oh, I can bank on high and rising home prices for my savings strategy. Now, the moment we say that, I will get many angry emails. I have many of them um, have come in the past, like F off and die. Um, you know, don't talk about, you know, getting rid of the principal uh, residency tax exemption, this home ownership tax shelter. Um, and, you know, I'm counting on that for my retirement. And I guess one of the things we had to say in response to that is take Paul Kershaw's story. I've been a well-paid university professor for 17 years. I can track my defined contribution pension um, and what I contribute and what my employer contributes. And over the last 17 years, it's accumulated a little over half a million dollars. That's great. It's going to go up more in the future. I feel lucky about that. So many people don't have pensions. But last year alone, I already shared you with, to you my story. My home went up by half a million dollars. How can we want a housing system to do in one year while I was sleeping what 17 years of hard work for a well-paid, well-educated professor is not doing? That is not what we can want from a housing system. So when someone says, hey, hands off this, I'm counting on this for my retirement, okay, well, this goes back to your brother. If you've been paying off your mortgage over 25 years, I'm all over that. But if you're counting on wealth windfalls, you're part of the cultural addiction. And so we need that kind of hard truth. A second thing that we uncovered is that because Statistics Canada, when it calculates inflation, it doesn't actually really measure what's happening to home prices. It has been sending problematic signals to our housing systems. This wouldn't cost anything to fix. Um, it's just a change in how we calculate the consumer price index. I'm probably boring people right now. But we have traffic signals to tell us when we need to slow down, when we can need to stop, when we can go through an intersection. They're critical for making sure that we manage a range of interacting uh, actors in our traffic system. Well, our measure of inflation, the consumer price index, is, is like a traffic signal. And when it's not giving the right signal, it's actually allowing the system to become dysfunctional. And so lately, because Stats Canada hasn't been measuring housing inflation adequately, it's been saying, hey, no problem, keep going forward, green light. But that's been then telling the Bank of Canada to keep having historically low interest rates, a really loose monetary policy. And when Canadians borrow money, we bring it into real estate and we bid up the price of housing. That accelerates unaffordability and wealth windfalls for those who are homeowners. Stats Can doesn't capture that, so it doesn't send the right signal. We keep going green light through this intersection, but we're not recognizing it's creating a huge mess of collateral damage when it comes to people wanting to make affordable homes for themselves, whether they aspire to be homeowners, which is further out of reach, or then their consolation prize is working hard to compete for existing rentals and rents are on the rise. And then this... Is you, have, is you have lawyers who can't afford home ownership in some of our cities, and then they're competing for the rentals that we would have thought back in the day the middle income spectrum was going to go after. Then the middle income is going after what you know the working poor would have, would have potentially tried to tap into in the past. The working poor then going after what we were hoping was going to be available to help people move off the streets when they're suffering from street homelessness. And then we have a greater problem to deal with the street homelessness that exists. 
And that is sort of the, the way in which our failure to keep control over average home prices is having this flowing effect to exacerbating all of the other housing inequalities that we've had a longer tradition of focusing on in this country. So those were two key themes. There were others, but I'm, I'll pause there and uh, hand it back to you because it should be a dialogue and not me pontificating. <laughs> no, it's, it's fascinating and we're learning so much. So it's so appreciated. Um, I wanted to ask you if there was any surprises that came out of the research or stuff that you think, hey, uh, we knew this, but we wanted to show it and prove it. Any surprises from it? Um, well, the, the solutions lab that we ran was less about new research and more about what kind of common ground could we find between a range of actors in the housing ecosystem, you know, from people who are, you know, who lead our mortgage lending, um, practices or people who are developers to people in the not-for-profit sector to rental advocate organizations and, you know, all parts of the housing ecosystem. And I guess one place where I was surprised is I really did think it was going to be straightforward for everyone to converge around the idea that minimally to restore affordability for all, we need home prices to stall so that earnings can catch up. And so the question was like, what do we want from home prices? And I thought people were like, yeah, we don't need them to keep going up. And I was surprised, albeit this was now, you know, when we started over a year and a half ago, um, that there wasn't as much convergence around like, no, we don't need home prices to continue rising. And that we had to actually debate that. And I think that then further reflected this sort of cultural reality that in the housing ecosystem and beyond, there is this addiction to high and rising home prices. And that addiction then forced somebody like me to say, ah, it's that cultural piece reinforced by the world of politics for a range of reasons we can talk about that we have to disrupt because if we don't disrupt that, I think we can't achieve any of the other silver buckshot in our policy framework. And so we did do some polling more recently and when, now we see that about 70% of Canadians do support the idea that home prices should stall so earnings can catch up. And, and I just hope that we can continue to build that momentum, maybe we get it to 75, 80 because that's enough political cover to allow politicians to courageously act on the evidence that housing is, this housing system is so dysfunctional and causing so much other collateral damage to our economy, and more importantly, to people's lives. And going back to your initial question, what's a home? The security. There's so much less security for people who are, haven't been homeowners for a while. And that, that's creating some, one, some of the biggest tension points in society. A whole, our whole class dynamic is now being determined by are you a homeowner or do you have a relationship to someone who's been a homeowner for a while? And if you do, you can tap into a kind of wealth accumulation. If you don't, then you are becoming locked out of a system where hard work doesn't pay off nearly like it used to. Absolutely. Wow. Um, awesome research. And we're going to talk about where people can see that. But before we do, what is next? You've done this uh, and you continue to push forward. What's next for Generation Squeeze? What, what can we look forward to? Well, um, as a reminder, I mean, we work across, you know, a range of issues like ten, uh, $10 a day childcare. That was a branding for a national childcare recommendation that started with Gen Squeeze. We, our yes. language was, let's not let childcare be another rent or mortgage size payment. I was so delighted to see that come into the 2021 federal budget. What a breakthrough after 50 years of clever people starting in the Royal Commission on the Status of Women in 1970 and arguing to have a national childcare system. And so I'm so proud of the way that Chen Squeeze could add a component to that with the, the branding of $10 a day childcare. 
and this language of don't let it be another mortgage life's payment. So we want to make sure childcare doesn't cost just an average of $10 a day. We want it to be maximum $10 a day. We don't, you know, when you don't have different fees when you go to the doctor, depending on your area, or when you go to grade school. And I think yeah. it's a slippery slope if we create that for childcare. I think we can have more affluent folks pay more for this national childcare system based on the income taxes that they'll pay if they have more earnings and more wealth, uh, but keep the fees flat for a whole range of good reasons. So that's one big focus. We're focusing on climate change and really wanting to uh, increase the teeth the, uh, the Net Zero Advisory Board, give them more ability to hold our governments to account on meeting our, our goals for 2030 and before because Canada's lousy at meeting climate change goals. Uh, so we need to actually finally meet these things and we need some sort of third-party accountability structure. So we want to make the Net Zero Advisory Board stronger. But you're probably most interested in housing. And on the housing front, we are gonna continue to focus on what you and I have already chatted about, which is this cultural addiction. And I am nervous that the cultural addiction spills over into the world of politics because politicians, rightly so, wanna be able to claim they're good economic managers. And that's gonna be increasingly critical coming out of the pandemic where we've taking on levels of deficit that I haven't seen in my professional life to fight the pandemic, important work to do. But if you look at what grows our economy in Canada, it's real estate. Real estate is the biggest industry in Canada. It's 14% of our gross domestic product, which would be great if 14% of Canadians uh, also found, made their livelihoods in that industry. But we don't. Fewer than 2% of people do. Wow. So what does that mean about how we're growing our economy? It means... We, we celebrate growing our GDP when it, um, uh, what, what it's doing is it's growing our major cost of living, housing, and a very few people make their livelihoods there. Real estate agents who do make good earnings, uh, but everybody else is actually seeing their, their earnings fall behind compared to their major cost of living. The only other um, corollary benefit is for homeowners who are getting these lovely wealth windfalls. So real estate agents make good livelihoods, wealth windfalls for homeowners. Everyone else sees their hard work fall further behind in terms of covering their major cost of living. We need our governments to say that's not the best way to build back after the pandemic. But because they want to be able to claim we're good economic managers, it's easy to point to rising GDP. And if they were to stall home prices, then they might be more at risk of a opposition party seeing, see, you're not growing the economy anymore. And that is this political addiction that we're needing to wrestle with. So we're trying to figure out how can we make it safe for the world of politics to potentially slow down real estate in terms of how it contributes to our economic growth and not have that be, put them at risk for not winning the next election. Because if we can't make it safe in the world of politics, we're not going to get the range of policy adaptations that we require. Absolutely. Well said. Um, and some lofty goals there. If people want, you talked before about the 37,000 power in numbers. Let's get those numbers up. If people want to become part of the solution, if they want to find out more about your work, where can they go? 
Yeah, first go to GenSqueeze.ca and uh, the landing page as it is set up right now, there's us, join us. And it really is the case that our ability and our power to influence public policy grows with the size of our network because politics responds to those who organize and show up. I would also invite people to join us in our Hard Truths podcast. We've just started that in the last couple of months. We're behind Blue Door. We're not as, we haven't been as cool as you, but we're catching up. We're hoping to add another uh set of voices. Ours focuses on intergenerational fairness as the dominant theme and housing comes up almost all of the time. So um, yeah, find us wherever you find your podcasts and um, subscribe to Hard Truths. Those would be two good places to keep in touch with us. Awesome. We can absolutely do that. And listen, Paul, anytime you have uh, something to say, you're welcome back on On The Way Home. Uh, it's important and we've learned so much in such a short time. Thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. Awesome. You know, to have that kind of enthusiasm as Paul does uh, in the work that he's doing, a tough, tough slog too. You're talking about changing culture. Um, but listen, we have to do it right now. Uh, if we, we do what we did, we get what we got and, and, and it's not working. We have to fix the system. Uh, listen, go to Generation Squeeze, check it out, become part of the solution, listen to the podcast. Um, that's the least we could do. And I like it. Let's not focus on complaining. Let's think of a way forward exactly what Paul and Generation Squeeze are doing. Another great episode of On The Way Home. We will see you next time with another great guest. Thanks for now. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.